Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, I'm joined by guest co-host Connie Dobriva, and we feature Jenny DeLumo. Jenny is a Senior Planner and Transportation Review Team Lead at the San Francisco Planning Department, where she reviews complex transportation projects for environmental impacts and works on transportation policy. In addition to transportation and environmental planning, she has experience in sustainable development, redevelopment, and interagency collaboration. Join us as we learn about Jenny's approach to leadership as an environmental professional. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Jessa, and my pronouns are she, hers. Hi, I'm Connie Dobreva. My pronouns are she, hers. And today we have Jenny DeLumo, who is a senior planner and transportation review team lead with the San Francisco Planning Department. Thank you so much for joining us, Jenny. We appreciate you having me. Sorry for stepping over you. No, you're fine. <laughs> I was still going. I'm like, I don't, you know. Oh, oh well, <laughs> thank you for having me. And my pronouns are she, hers too. Thank you. So Jenny, first things first, how are you connected to AEP? Um, I'm a member and I have been since I think around the time I started at the planning department, which is around eight years ago. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah. It doesn't feel that long though, but it has been a long time. How did you get connected with AEP? Like what was your, uh, what was the catalyst for joining? When I started at the department, the first day they give me, they gave me a copy of the CEQA guidelines and um, then an AEP conference, the annual conference is coming up. They're like, you should join. And when I went, signed up to, to come to the conference, it was like, you should join the association. So I did. And it's, it's just such a wonderful resource. Um, you know, professionally, but also the opportunity to get to talk to other people around the state and hear what they're doing, you know, what their challenges are and how they address them. Um, it's, I, I really do appreciate being part of the group. Yeah. And you spoke, I know at this year's conference, that's, I was introduced to you by one of your colleagues and I feel like you had one of the, uh, the panels that had all the buzz at the conference. Um, yeah, we, you know, San Francisco, you know, we're, we're like a lot of other cities and in some ways we get some unique challenges and autonomous vehicles are one of them. So it was, it felt like something that, you know, folks might want to hear about because, you know, even if it's not there yet in your city, it might be coming soon. You know, AV companies, they want to, they want to deploy and they want to deploy broadly. So it was, it was fun to bring together people to talk about like, what is autonomous vehicles, period? And then how do you address that when you're thinking about environmental impacts? Um, and we, you know, luckily had a case study that we could use to like a real world, real world case study to talk that through. Yeah, that's so interesting. Can, can we get the Cliff Notes version if you have like a, a one minute version of what that is for those that are listening? Yeah. Um, so there's a company, Cruise. Um, and they have been testing autonomous vehicle passenger service in the state, um, not just San Francisco. And they came to us with a project where they wanted to cite a place to 
not only charge their vehicles, but also maintain them and test them. And so this was like the first time we had a project like this come our way. And so we just evaluated what the impacts were. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the focus in the panel when we were at AEP was like, okay, well, it's there are zero emission vehicles that they're testing. What does that mean in a world where VMT is so tied to greenhouse gas emissions? And these are vehicles that are not in and of themselves, at least, generating vehicles, um, greenhouse gas emissions. So, um, you know, we talked about, you know, who has the regulatory authority over autonomous vehicles. It's DMV and CPUC. And then when it gets down to, you know, the land use side of things, what does that look like when we're evaluating a project like this? That's fascinating. And it's really, it's an interesting combination of where our industry is going as a whole is, um, the combination of sustainability and environmental planning right sustainability is new so thank you for sharing that yeah i'm like we could have a whole podcast on that mm -hmm. um but uh to tee that up let's uh talk about you jenny and your your career and your passion for the environment and so with your role um you know you mentioned that you've been um with the department for eight years but how did you get what was your path like to get into this industry and i know um, I can imagine it's a long story, but just kind of like, at what point did you start to get interested in the environmental field and how did you carve your path to your position today? Yeah, I think it started as a kid. I have a memory of coming home and explaining to my family what recycling was at a time when we did not have recycling as an option. So I'm, I'm dating myself. Um, and then in high school, I joined the speech and debate team and I started giving these speeches about the greenhouse gas effect. And they were probably too boring to be compelling, but it was fascinating to me. And so I think I always gravitated towards, um, whether in school or in work, ways that, you know, I was in some way in using my time to improve my environment. Um, and so I had done nonprofit development for a while, and then I went to grad school and um, really discovered urban planning. Um, and when I got out, I was able to get a fellowship at the Environmental Protection Agency through this program. If there's anybody out there looking for fellowships, it's called ORISE. It's the Oak Ridge. I'm going to totally mess this up, but just look up ORISE. And they placed... Um, people, whether they're in school or just getting out of school in different um, federal agencies throughout the country, just doing like, like anything, any kind of work wow. that they need. And so I got an ORISE fellowship at the EPA and they put me in the Brownsfield office. And it's kind of funny that we didn't specifically do Brownfield's work. It was the HUD-DOT EPA Partnership for Sustainable Communities where we would try to like harness the resources financially and otherwise of the three agencies towards um, sustainable redevelopment. And given that it was in Chicago, this is a Chicago office, you know, it was, it was a lot of the issues that rust built cities face, which are very different from California, um, declining population and what that means in terms of like just vacant homes and vacant space. Um, and lack of economic investment. But I think the thing that's similar to California is it, you know, the, the leaders there, the people we're talking to about these projects, wanted to find a way to um, strengthen their communities and improve their environment. Um, and it just 
it was just different tools that they used versus what we have here. So when I moved to California, I just started looking for jobs that tried to marry that idea of like, how do you tackle the environment, sustainability, and urban planning together? And where, I'm sorry if I missed this, but where did you grow up or where did you relocate from? I, I was born in Chicago, moved to San Diego, moved to Sacramento, <laughs> moved back to Chicago, and then moved back to California about 10 years ago. Or I'm in San Diego, ago. so. Yeah. I love it. And with that, is there anything, you know, talking about that, that attracted you to the city of San Diego? Like you said, these Rust Belt cities have their own challenges. Were there challenges unique to San Francisco that attracted you to that city? Or was it just kind of a natural progression as the opportunities arose for you? It was more of a natural progression. Um, I always wanted to come back to California. Yeah. I mean, nobody I'm, wants, I'm from nobody the wants to live. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. I'm from like the Kansas city area. So yeah, I uh, <laughs> won't grill you on that. I understand. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you mentioned something, um, you mentioned sustainability and I think that's been a, a, you know, it's a buzzword, right. But there's meaning. And so I was wondering, um, what your definition is of sustainability. How do you define that? I, I don't know if I have a right answer or a good answer, but I think, you know, when I was a kid, I just thought, oh, sustainability is like, we're going to recycle and that's going to, that's going to change things. And obviously that is not the case. You know, we now know that, you know, so little of what we do recycle um, actually can be recycled. Um, And then I think when I got to college, I started to think about it in terms more austerity terms of like, how do I make the smallest impact I possibly can um, on the environment? Like going vegan, for for example, um, or eating less meat. And then I think as I got older, um, it's, it's more just about making informed choices where I have influence to make them. Um, how, do, how do I make the smallest impact on the environment? But knowing that I can't do that, how do I use my, my money, my time wisely? Mm-hmm in a way that I'm a good steward of the environment. And that's not just like, that could be biking, you know, when I could have driven, or that's just like, who do I give my money to? Um, and where do, and where do they give their money to? Like, where do I have any, any sense of influence? I love that. Like, I always think about that with spending is like vote with your dollars. Yep. It's so true. And- Are you vegan? No, I I love cheese too much. I couldn't I couldn't hold on. I like, I get that. <laughs> I had to eat cheese. The Midwestern in you. Exactly. Um, that's how I feel. I was thinking the other day. I was like, I emotionally, I'm like, I connect with veganism and I understand why it's good and I I want to do it, but the willpower and like I don't even know where to start. Um. So, I uh, yeah, that's a a hard jump. I hear you. It's just like, let's do what you can. Like no yeah. one's perfect. Nothing's perfect for everyone. There's no one solution. You just do what you can. Yeah. I think that's such an important message. We actually had a guest on, um, it was probably about six months ago at this point, Cindy Lynn, and she also was from the EPA or she had like had a, a career there at some point. And that was her message was like, we're all, just be better than yesterday. Like we don't have to solve the world in a day. Um, so I think that's like, you know, a thread that's coming up is that these 
problems and challenges are very big and overwhelming. And so it's like, just like being a little bit better than yesterday and just like incrementally moving towards progress um, as we can as individuals, while we also know that there needs to be um, some more significant change uh, for some of the environmental challenges we face. Uh, but yeah, I think that's, um, that's a great message. Like do what we can. Oh yeah. I think it's especially relevant with, you know, when we hear something about how well we're doing in terms of, um, greenhouse gas emissions and, and global warming and climate change, it, sometimes it's all doom and gloom and it is dire. It's like, it's truly dire, but also if people don't have hope, or feel as if they're making progress, then sometimes you you stop doing the things that that are actually going to get you there. Um, it's got to be some positivity, I guess. Yes, I was just thinking about the article that came out about the Arctic sea ice that will disappear by 2030. Um, I think that just came out this week, and um, it was like it's like it's too late. But anyway, okay, I can. What, I'm going to stop that path. And go down. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's me. I'm like, um, so kind of in that context. So like there are some big challenges and it can feel defeating, but you know, you're, you know, being in this profession and you know, you're a team lead, how do you take care of yourself to show up in the world and to lead these big initiatives and also, you know, be a team motivator at the same time? Um, I think recognizing for myself and other people that we have lives outside of work. Um, it can be all consuming and sometimes we have deadlines or, you know, priorities that we can't shut off, you know, at whatever time we typically are supposed to shut our computers off. Um, but whenever I have the opportunity to truly like let go, just be present with my family at home, not checking teams or emails. That's, I think that's my best self-care. And not only that, but like to your point of like, maybe just turning off the news and not looking at my app and doom scrolling, um, just being present. And, and so with that, I think, you know, as a leader, you're setting an example, right? For those working underneath you. And so what are some some of your leadership philosophies or practices and like how you work with your team and, you know, reflect like what you just said, like, how do you show up at work and manage your team to instill kind of that um, approach as far as like moving things forward and projects, getting them completed while also like respecting, you know, the work-life balance, if you will. Something I've learned from others and I try to, um, I try to model is coaching rather than, always directing, um, asking questions where I'm, I'm essentially letting the person know, like, I value your experience and your judgment. And so what do you think the solution is? And then I will support you in that solution. Um, and sometimes, you know, being like, are you, are you looking for a solution for me? Cause sometimes people are, or are you looking just to have a sounding board? So trying to, to honor that, you know, everybody has some experience and knowledge and they know a lot more than they think they do sometimes. Um, and then trying not to, and not sending emails, even if you're working late, don't send the email, wait until the morning, you know, don't make the, don't give the impression that somebody needs to be on and read it mm-hmm. at all, at all hours. Like, even if that's something you need to do for yourself to meet a deadline, like at least present that you're keeping those boundaries. 
And so others will feel comfortable keeping those boundaries too. I think that brings up a really interesting point, which is as a leader, right? When you, you're entry level at the organization, as you grow into it, um, one of the things I've found is, right, thinking about how you come across and how you're perceived. Because when you're up climbing the corporate ladder or um, paying your dues at work, right? You're answering emails, you're sending emails, you're sending that late email to show that you were played. Um, and how that shifts when you're in a position of leadership. So thank you for bringing that up, of, of looking looking at yourself from the eyes of your team, your younger team that is modeling um, how they should be showing up at work and in the world. Yeah, and I think I've been lucky that I've had at the planning department some really great supervisors and mentors who helped me see that and modeled it themselves because um, it it starts at the top too. Um, so they helped help create that culture um, where we could do that. I think that's, that's so important about the email. And I think it's, um, you know, I think of people or leaders who will say, well, I don't expect people to reply at that hour, or I just need to send it, but it's, you're still sending that message, right. Of like, well, I'm doing this. And so this is okay. Like this is acceptable. And and it, I think especially as, you know, when you have people working for you or who look up to you, it can be perceived as like, oh, well, they're doing this, so I should do this. Or I want to show them that I'm responsive and I'm, you know, online all the time and can get the job done. And I, so I think that's so important is just to like, even though you just want to send it, get it off your plate, it's like, just draft it, send it in the morning, set the automatic send 8 a.m. Um, but, you know, coaching yourself, if you will, <laughs> to, to practice those behaviors. Jenny, how um, big is the team that you lead? Um, I think how many are this? Yeah, I should know this offhand. Um, we fluctuate, but there's about eight of us on the transportation team. Um, the reason I ask is what are some of the ways as you're over, you know, three or four people, what are some of the ways in which you stay connected with your team in terms of sort of that personal leadership relationship building? leadership building within your team, right? Because we are, we're so, we're in an unprecedented time of how busy we are in the environmental field in the last five years or so. Um, so what are some of the ways in which you can share with other leaders on how you stay connected with your team? Yeah, I think, um, so we have bi-weekly meetings and we try to, you know, we, we have the, you know, serious, like, here are updates and here's changes to the process, but then we try to keep it fun at the end. Like there's a moment where we can just digress <laughs> or share something we learned that doesn't have to be work related. Um, and, you know, we try to be mindful of people's time. And like you said, pe people are busy. So if there's nothing to share, we'll cancel the meeting. Mm -hmm. um, but we try not to do it too often because it's just a chance to connect. Um, and then um, we'll also have check-ins where the the purpose is to like talk about how are things going with your project, but also it's another coaching opportunity of like, are you, are we helping meet your needs? Am I helping meet your needs in terms of the professional development you want to see and like how you're being supported in the projects you have now? So I think like having regular, regularly scheduled check-ins, which I sure, I'm sure many people do. Um, is one way, but I would say focusing on coaching and then mm -hmm. just an opportunity to talk and have an interpersonal, um, build an interpersonal 
relationship that's not, you know, just about the work. I, yeah, I mirror that. I think that it's so important. I, um, the most rewarding relationships in work, um, or even with colleagues like yourself, once we get to getting to know people, that's one of the tips that I always give to young professionals is you don't always have to get on the phone and just stick to being professional. You don't need to get down to brass tacks right away. Get to know the human being across from you, across the line, get to know who they are. It makes our work so much more enjoyable if you have know something about the person that you get to deal with at an agency or at another firm at a sub consultant. Um, I think that I see that a lot in um, younger staff. They, they think they have to be professional all the time. And there's this really bright line between who you are at work and your personal interests. And I think this is a, it's one of the things I try and instill on them. It's, it's okay. It's okay to get to know people. It's okay to, I think in fact, it, it helps us have a richer life. Yeah, that is so true. It's like you should you should be able to bring your whole self to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you, should, you should be able to be authentic at work, and and it also helps build trust. Um, and that trust comes. I mean, it comes in handy when you're working. You know, you understand better where somebody's coming from when you have that level of trust. I was just having this conversation um, earlier this week because it's it. it if you are having, you know, challenges at home, that's going to be brought into work. And if you're having challenges at work, that's going to be brought home. Like, and so I think, you know, I was, the conversations around like the whole self, like seeing people as a whole person and not just like you are in this role, this is what you do, stay in your lane, but, you know, having compassion and and conversations and discussions, because I think, you know, for example, if there were performance issues, is that uh, a lack of motivation, engagement, competency, or is there some distraction and stress outside of the day-to-day that is impacting that individual? And how can you support them to, to balance that? And I think it's, I think, you know, it kind of depends on when and where you kind of came up in your career and at what stage you are, because um, they're so long where it's like, so, you know, like you're saying, like you have to be professional and stoic and, you know, be like, dear sir, madam, and regards. And, and not feel that. And I think, um, I, I'm so happy to hear like so many leaders. And I think it's, it seems to be, I don't know, but the people we talk to on here are very, uh, you know, compassionate and, you know, work on that soft skill side as well as the technical side. So I just appreciate that you do that. (laughs) No, you, you guys are both so, so on it with this because, you know, things happen you know, in the world, there's constant um, stress and trauma and, you know, thing and just being able to stop and and acknowledge that like something's going on out there. And if you need a moment <laughs> or you need a day to process that, then that's okay. Um, I feel like that's something that maybe it, I know I didn't have when I was first starting working like a mental health day, like people would say it, but no one would actually say it. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of like stomach aches at my first job. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's acknowledged to be like, this is, this is something if you need to do to, to recenter yourself um, and come back to work, you should be able to have the time to do that. I yeah, I, I'm a firm believer in that. And I, and I do find, I think you bring up a good point. There is somewhat of a generational of how you came up, like who is, who were your mentor? There's this sort of this grueling 
you know, I did it. I had to go through it. I never got to take my Mahath days. So, you know, you can do it too. And, and that's one of the things in leadership. I think it's important for us to constantly reimagine what leadership is in our positions. And we're the ones that get to do that. Yeah. Because we can bridge the gap between a young generation that has different ideas of how they want to work and, and what, what brings value to their lives. And, you know, a slightly older generation that may have a completely different set of ideas of how you show up for work. And, and we're sort of in that area and as emerging leaders um, and leaders in the area, leading teams, we get to bridge that gap between supervisors and an up and coming staff. So I love hearing that I love hearing that, that we're all thinking about, you know, when my staff or my, my team comes to say, I really need a mental health day. It makes me so happy and I, it makes me smile and, and it means that they're really aware of how they're showing up. Yeah. I, I had someone ask about that recently. They're like, you know, I just need a day, like a mental health day. And it's, um, it's weird. Cause I take it. Yeah. Like you said, it's like, I kind of take it as a compliment, like, Oh, I've fostered this environment where someone feels comfortable saying this. So yay, Jessa. And I, I was thinking kind of in these terms of what you're saying, Claudine too, is that a lot of my management style and, um, the way I show up is the, I think about what I had managers in some of my first jobs do. And I'm like doing the opposite of that. I'm like, what did I not like about that? Like I kind of learned, um, you know, the hard way. So it was like, Jenny, you're saying like, you had all, like, you've had a lot of amazing leaders and mentors with your, like with your, um, you know, department now. And I'm kind of, I don't want to say I haven't, that's not fair, but I think I look back to the ones that I, I were not a good example. <laughs> and I'm like, what did they do that I didn't like? And how am I, am I going to do that differently? Um, but kind of, I wanted to come back to something you said earlier or talking about, um, kind of more earlier in your career, like it sounded, you know, from an early age, you've had a passion for a started with recycling and, um, you know, it's led you to, to working with one of the like, you know, largest like or cities in the country and on some big issues. And, you know, and you mentioned some of these programs, you mentioned, oh, right. like, how did you learn about all this? Like, did you have like strong, like educators, mentors in your life, as far as like kind of helping this path for you, um, just doing the research and passionate and focus on what you wanted to do. Like, how did you, you learn about these opportunities and these uh, different paths? Um, good friends and, and yeah, good, good mentors who, who looked out for me for opportunities. Um, for O-Rise, I was actually doing an internship in Chicago mm-hmm. and um, one of the intern coordinators said, Hey, I know someone at the EPA who's looking for help through this program, I think you would be good, you know, and your internship's going to end soon. So you should apply. And, um, like it, sometimes it's just, it's, un- it's unfortunate, um, that you can't just have all the resources there and see a job opportunity and go for it and get it. But sometimes it's just about talking to people and having someone look out for you and point you in the right direction. I think mentorship is is so critical and a lot of the, you know, hearing your story and um, some other individuals we've had on the podcast, having strong mentors is, is such a key um, to getting a, on the right path and to advancing on that path. And so 
AP has launched a mentorship program, um, which we encourage everybody to participate in, go to the website. Um, but also like, what's your advice for people to find a mentor and, or to be a mentor? Like, how does that relationship become established? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would encourage like, um, formalizing it in your organization, advocating for formalizing it in your organization to the extent that, you know, your time at being either the mentor or the mentee is valued and paid for. Um, because I think mentoring, or I should say providing opportunities for that is a form of supporting the entire organization that you work for. You know, people who feel supported, engaged, like they're growing, they want to stay <laughs> and they want to grow and they want to give whatever they learn back. Um, so I think, you know, advocating for it to be formal and then informally, if you just, and I'm not saying I'm the best at this, but if you see someone you admire, you know, just tell them and ask them questions. Um, I think people are more open to that than, than you would think. And it's awkward <laughs> for the introverts among us. Mm-hmm. Um, but just send an email, do a call, go to an AAP conference and go up to someone and say, like, I, I'm really curious how you got where you are. Um, and I'd love to learn more. And sometimes the the relationship can form from there. Um, and I say ask, asking for it. I personally asked for coaching and mentorship from my supervisors um, as part of my regular check-in and, and I got it. Um, and I, and I think, you know, we just have to be advocates for ourselves as much as we possibly can. Um, and hopefully that will, you know, either filter into the culture of your organization. Maybe it won't, but at least you asked. Yeah, and I think you really brought up a very interesting point too, um, which is there is a difference between somebody who's championing for you and somebody who's a mentor for you. And sometimes we have to show up the person who said, hey, I can connect you with somebody at EPA. Maybe it wouldn't be somebody that you would have an ongoing mentorship relationship with, but there's somebody who's really a champion for your success. And I think that leaves opportunities where we don't have time for long-term mentorships um, in environmental careers. We can help connect people, right? The, the importance of being a connector, I think, is sometimes underscored how quickly you can change the course of somebody's life just by connecting them to the right internship or the right person in the right field. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, there's, you know, a mentorship should be a relationship um, mm-hmm. and hopefully a long-term one. Um, and sometimes you just need someone to point you in the right direction. And they're different mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And so kind of, a, you know, with this, like, how does um, your department, so the the San Francisco planning department, how do you take care of your people? So, you know, you, you had some suggestions and are talking about like advocating for a mentorship program. What are some things that your department facilitates for your people? Um, so we have this amazing wellness team actually that, um, took off during the the pandemic lockdown and is still going and they do the typical things you think of when you think of self-care, you know, have like stretch breaks. Um, and even before the pandemic, we would get together and if folks wanted to like work out during the lunch hour, could do that. But then they also do stuff that's just around bringing people together outside of in the office, but outside of like a work specific thing. So we had like, they organized a plant swap. You bring your plant cuttings and swap it. 
a clothing swap, um, things like that. So that's that's something department wide um, that I really appreciate that they that um, our department does. That's awesome. So like the wellness program is not just you know I think about it in more physical wellness, but it's again like kind of the whole person. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. And is it like an employee-led, volunteer-led program? Yeah, it is. And, and like, it, it, but it's, it's time, like it's paid time that you, that mm-hmm. you get to stop and, you know, 15 minutes, come to stretch, talk to other people, come grab a plant. <laughs> it's great. It's a great idea. I know. I love that. That's cool. So Jenny, what, you know, what's your dream? for the environmental profession, like where it's going, like what would you like to see happen? Um, I think that, so I think the work we do, and I think most people recognize it as being an essential part of decision-making, um, of the decision-making process. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm talking specifically around like, you know, development projects or infrastructure projects or whatever. Um, But I think that's not always the case. And my, my dream is like people recognize this is not just a box to be checked or a cudgel to be wielded. You know, it's, it's integral to making projects better. Like it's not just a side piece of the work we do as planners in the city but it makes that project actually better when we stop and we think about like, what are we doing? What is our impact on the environment? How can we make it better? And we were talking about this a little bit before you started and about, um, you know, you were talking about some uh, streamlining initiatives and is that a component of what you just mentioned? Do you think that streamlining is, is part of that? Like, why are we doing this and and what are its impacts or is that a a separate issue? (laughs) I think it's both. Um, I think sometimes streamlining can be a scary term for for folks when they think about um, environmental review of projects because it sounds like we're just, you know, moving forward and not stopping and thinking about all the, you know, 21 topics or so that we have on the checklist. But really what it is is being, um, and in this case, the housing element um, is that we did take a look at, you know, what does it mean to implement the housing element? What are those impacts? How can we mitigate them? And then now that we know that, if a project comes in, like we've we've started that process of the analysis and we can evaluate it um, more efficiently and expeditiously than we could before. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I think some people hear streamlining and they think, and they think that like, it's that box to be checked or I don't like it. And so there's that cudgel I could wield, but really it's about trying to, um, it's protecting the environment while also addressing our housing crisis um, and doing that as, as expeditiously as we can. Yes. Well, um, I think that's a great, bullet point to wrap up on. I mean, you summed it up, uh, I think some very challenging and complex issues very clearly and, um, easy to understand. So thank you for that. (laughs) Um, so yeah, we'll get into our rapid, uh, our wrap up rapid five, unless, uh, there's anything else that you'd like to 
mention before we wrap up. Yeah. All right, Connie. Okay. Oh, for the rapid fire? No, no. There's nothing. I think I, I want to thank you for the way that you wrapped it up. My question was going to be to end on, which is what is it? How is it that you still stay connected to the environmental profession? You mentioned that we really are in most of what we do is in support of that development process and, and improving it, but it is in support of decision makers. And my question was going to be how is it that what and I guess maybe I can still ask the question. I think you wrapped it up, but what are um, what's some of the ways in which you still connect with the environmental profession, right? Is outside of just supporting development or decision makers, um, which sometimes, right, can be in conflict with protecting the natural environment. And you spoke a little bit to that, which is actually marrying those two, finding ways to protect the natural environment while still facilitating development, but what are some of the ways in which you still stay connected to that environmental purpose um, in your career? That's such a good and hard question. <laughs> I, I, I think you talked a little bit about that, right? The streamlining that I heard a little bit of educating the public, right? Of what our purpose really is as a part of your dream. Um, yeah. I I um I do think like the opportunities that we have to talk to people about projects um you know we notice when a project's going to happen and like you know I've been getting emails about one the last couple of days and it's it's really an opportunity to to explain what CEQA is what it isn't um how we can help and to take those considerations seriously as we think about, you know, what are we looking at in our environmental review? Um, I do think that, like, one of the things I enjoy the most about my job is when I get to talk to the public. And I know that sounds insane, but because <laughs> I know it some people, but it, it's like, um, you know, we're in our world, our sequel world, and we know the acronyms and we know like the significance thresholds and, you know, but when you actually get to stop and talk to someone about like, yeah, you're, you've got concerns and um, this is how we think about them in sequa, And, you know, maybe we didn't think about this thing that you brought up. And so I'm going to go back um, and consider that. Like, I, that's a really rewarding part of the job. Is the question perfectly great well we'll wrap up with the softball questions now just the hardest question now the easiest ones um <laughs> okay wrap up rapid five what is your favorite daily habit okay when my son gets home or i get home and he's already home and i get to hear about his day it's just Aww. hilarious because how old is he he's five and so oh. i mean these are 30 second conversations but like five-year-old drama is real <laughs> they have clicks and so yeah i love getting updates oh, i love that uh what are three things you would bring to a deserted island um if people count then definitely my immediate family um so my son and my husband and then music and books i couldn't live without that so all, all of right. my music and books <laughs> some loopholes there uh yeah. <laughs> What is your favorite environmental policy? Um, that's a that's a that was a hard one. Um, 
I think policies that make it easier to facilitate that facilitate mm-hmm. density, and this is definitely coming from a San Francisco perspective, but um, things that remove those barriers, like um, removing single family zoning controls, because not only does it promote density, which you know, we know can reduce VMT and its associated effects, but it's also a form of redress because it's it's in the past been used as an exclusionary tool. It's an excellent point. Yeah. What is your favorite flora or fauna? Probably flora. Um, I turned into a pandemic plant parent, so I've got plants oh. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> you bring in your plant clippings to share? I brought some in. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Do you name your plants? No, but now I should. Yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking about it, but I don't have a, uh, I can't hang on to them long enough to name them. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. And then finish this thought. Wouldn't it be cool if? Um, environment protection, if it was so ingrained in society that it wasn't like a, a goal or priority we had to single out. It was just something we did. This is something we do. I love that. Well, thank you so much again, Jenny. It's wonderful to have you. We appreciate your time and insight. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jenny. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.